Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, the second chapter. And we got down to verses 4 and 5, but I'm going to, for the sake of many that have not been here, go back to the first chapter and at least give you, give you the key to understanding the book of Revelation. For we have a key verse in the first chapter. And look at verse 19. And this is the key verse to the whole book. Revelation 1 verse 19. The Lord tells John to write. He says, write the things which thou hast seen. And he's just speaking about the vision of the glorified Christ in the previous verses from verses 12 through 18 in this first chapter. The things which thou hast seen. And then he says, and the things which are. The things which are constitute the second and third chapter of Revelation because it's the, the, the message to, messages to the seven churches that Jesus chooses to point out the things about these seven churches. The things which are. And then it says, and the things which shall be hereafter. And if you'll flip over to chapter 4, verse 1. And the last part of verse 1 in chapter 4, it says, I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So, chapter 4, verse 1 shows us the things of the future. So, it's a very simple division. And I think everyone, in order to understand the book of Revelation, if you'll get this straight in your mind, it will be easier for you to understand it. The things which thou hast seen is what John saw of the vision of Christ in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. The things which are, and we're still in that present, as far as the chronology of the church age is concerned, we're still in that those things which are. We're still in things that are present. We're still in the church age. Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And these are the letters to the seven churches. And the things which shall be hereafter starts at chapter 4. And the rest of the book of Revelation is all future. And as we get to those places, we'll explain more in detail why we know those things to be future. But, You know, there's so much to say about the book of Revelation. If you stop to explain all of these things we're stating at the present, we would not get anywhere tonight in our lesson. But just take it for granted that these are the three aspects of the book of Revelation and the three divisions is threefold. What John had seen and what the things that are, the present church age, and the things which shall be hereafter, chapter 4, verse 1, right on through the end of the book. We said that in the letters to the seven churches, which we're studying now in the second and third chapter of the book of Revelation, in these letters, the things that are said apply to the, to the seven local churches as they actually existed and were addressed by the Lord in that day and hour. In John's day, he picked out seven local churches. They were churches of Asia Minor. And they were less than a hundred miles apart. There were many hundreds of churches, or there were many, many churches by this time. 
uh, all over the, the country and all over Asia as well as other parts of the world. But Jesus chose these seven churches to point out things that and conditions that existed in those churches as a kind of a sample and, and uh, to illustrate the things that would, we would find in churches then and throughout the church age. Even today, we find the same things going on in the churches that were spoken of uh, there in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And so it applies to the church local. It applies to uh, the personal or individual in, uh, individuals within the church. So it has a personal application because he, he says in those letters, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And then it says further that to him that overcometh, so we know there are those overcomers within the church, and they, each time it states the overcomer will be rewarded in uh, one fashion or other, with one reward or another, and there's different rewards spoken of in each church. So we know it's personal. And then we know also that it's to admonish, or to advise, or to exhort, to edify, as we find these conditions that exist in the churches throughout the ages, whatever we find, and we've already studied basically the first one, the church of Ephesus, and we'll give you the meaning of the names of these churches as we go along. We gave them in our last lesson. But uh, we'll find that uh, when these conditions that exist, whether it's something that we need to be condemned for or something that we need to be commended for, that the Lord leaves it open to where we find this proper uh, edification, commendation, and also He leaves it open to find that if we have the fault that exists in these churches, that we have the rebuke that He gives those churches. Very even-handed and loving and compassionate is the Lord. Because He deals with what we have right and He recognizes it. He says, I know thy works. And He deals with what is wrong with us and He corrects that wrong. And isn't that what ought to be done? God will do that. Men sometimes will not. We're fickle, aren't we? And we dodge the issue much of the time. But the Lord is not that way. He tells us if it's right and He tells us if, it, tells us if it's wrong. And we can appreciate that. And uh, then the fourth uh, way that you deal with these churches is prophetic. It's like a prophecy of the church ages. I think we gave you that in our last lesson. And we've got more coming out in this lesson if we get to it. But for the sake of those that were not here, I've tried to give you this groundwork because uh, there's many, there are many here that were not here the first lesson or the second lesson or, or one or the other. And so I want you to have that groundwork. And as we go along, maybe it will uh, unfold itself to you. Now then, we dealt with the church of Ephesus. And we gave you the meaning of the names of these churches, and I might just repeat that for the sake of some that didn't get them. When you read in chapter 2, verse 1, the church of Ephesus, he says, right, Ephesus means desirable. Now, if you'll follow me through, if you're studying the Bible, do you have a pen in your hand? You can write in your margin right beside that verse or some vacant space in your Bible. The next church is in verse 8, chapter 2 now is where we're dealing and it says Smyrna, and that means myrrh. And we'll deal with that church tonight because we'll try to get into that lesson. Put myrrh right beside that. 
And the next one is in verse 12, and it's Pergamos. And Pergamos means a thorough marriage. This church was married to the world, joined to the world. And then we find in Thyatira, verse 18, it's a continual sacrifice. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, you have Sardius. And Sardius means those escaping. And then in chapter 3, verse 7, you have Philadelphia. And most of us know by even in our own nation that city of Philadelphia means city of brotherly love. So it means the same thing here in our Bible, brotherly love. And then we also find in the third chapter, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the church of Laodicea or the Laodiceans, which is in verse 14. And this means the rights of the people. The rights of the people. The Laodiceans. We gave you a little bit about those various aspects in our last lesson. But we'll pick up with our verse-by-verse study tonight. Beginning in chapter 2 of Revelation, we've already talked about the church of Ephesus. We've talked about the fact in verse 2 that he says, I know thy works. You have chapter 2, verse 2. And thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. The Lord knew all about their labor and their patience, and and their uh, patience with bearing those which was evil, and how they could not bear with them, and how they tried them and tested them by the word. And those that claimed to be apostles and were not, he knew how they would, had inspected others that claimed, made false claims. In verse 3 he says, And has borne and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. He commends the things that are good about this church of Ephesus. And then he starts out in verse 4 and says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. He speaks of their love being, they had not lost their first love, but they had left their first love. I remember saying one time that uh, the closest I believe that I ever was to the Lord is when I was in the seminary and heard the Bible preached and taught Every day of the week, every hour of the morning hours from 7 o'clock in the morning till noon, and was constantly being fed upon the Word of God for three years plus. And I really believe that that was some of my closest times with the Lord. And if we can look back on times when we were closer, that means that we're further away. And so we desire to be closer to the Lord. And we should have that desire. And these these people not only uh, had that first love, but they had grown cold in that first love. They were still about the service of the Lord. We need, especially all of us, I would say all of us here, need to renew that first feeling of love that we have for Jesus who died for us and saved us. And to serve Him with our whole heart The Bible says, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And so we desperately need to renew our first love from time to time. First love can be restored. And I desire that. I think that we begin to see a little bit of it in our last 
Our first services of this year, we we had folks join the church the first Sunday and then some this morning. And, and it seems like the Holy Spirit and the Lord is so close to us. And let's pray that He will be closer and closer to us. And that we'll be closer to Him. He hadn't gone anywhere. It's kind of like the illustration of the couple that were driving down the road. And, and the young lady says, well, honey, says, you know, says when we first married, we used to sit closer together. And the, Bert was just driving down the road and he says, but honey, I haven't moved. <laughs> so the space sometimes we make ourselves, don't we? So let's narrow that space and be in the same place and have our first love. And uh, enjoy the fellowship with the Lord that we need to enjoy. But in verse uh, 5 he says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. There is a way to restore that first love. And he says, And do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now, he was not going to remove the church. Remember, the church was spoken of in symbolism in the first chapter as one of the seven uh, candlesticks that Jesus stood in the midst of the seven candlesticks. He reminds them in verse 1, that he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks or in the midst of the churches. Because we're told that the seven candlesticks in chapter 1 are the seven churches. Jesus said they are. So they represent, they are the seven churches that he's talking about. And he says, I will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. I will remove the testimony, the light-bearing effect of this local church, Jesus said, if you do not repent. We cannot be a testimony if we're not what the Lord wants us to be. And so if we'll be what God wants us to be, we can be a testimony. And that's what we desire. That's what we look for. So if there's anything that would cause this distance to be between, let's uh, take care of it. When it says, and do the first works, thou art fallen and repent and do the first works, it actually says, do it now. Do the first works now. Not to wait a while. In verse 6 it says, But thou, this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now what are the Nicolaitans? You have to understand the meaning of these, this word. It's a twofold word. N-I-K-A-O. And it means to conquer. And laos means the people. Or the laity. The people. And this was a priestly order that had set itself apart and above the ordinary folks in the church. And this church of Ephesus had this going for them. Jesus said, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus did not want there to be a priestly order over the people to, to dominate and to... It was kind of like a special little cult of people in the church or a little group of people in the church that were wanting to run everything. Now see, everyone in the church has the opportunity of their own say and their own vote and their own word. Rich or poor, bond or free. In fact, we're all priestly uh, uh persons or believers in the presence of God. 
And in First Peter, if you want to see that, in First Peter chapter 2, notice what it says. In verse 5, it says, Ye also, are as lively stones, listen carefully, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood. The living stones in the local New Testament church are what? A holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable uh, to God by Jesus Christ. And he goes on and talks about believers. And I, if I took time, I could expound this whole passage. But as I say, we just have to take some things as we go along. But in verse 7 it says, Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. So it is talking about believers. And verse 8 says, uh, verse 9 says, But ye, ye believers, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Who is it? Believers are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, what? And holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises or virtues of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So each and every one of us, look, since Jesus died on the cross and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst, we can come because of this provision Jesus made into God's very presence, ourselves individually as believers. It's a wonderful privilege, isn't it? We don't have to have anyone do it for us. You don't have to come to the preacher. You can go straight to the Lord because He's opened the way into the Holy of Holies for you and for me. And I'm no more... uh, I'm only a priest in the sense of a believer priest, and you're only a, you have the same uh, situation as a believer priest in the presence of God. And so if you study First Peter chapter two, you will see that that's exactly what it's talking about. And so in this book of Revelation chapter two verse uh, six, this thou hast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And that means that they were the ones that, that would conquer the people. It actually means to conquer the people or to lord it over the people. Nikao means to conquer, conquer, and Laos means the people. Now then, the deeds of the Nicolaitans were spoken of in verse 6, but glance over at verse 15 when you get to the church of Pergamos. Just glance across at verse 15. It says, So thou hast also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. You see, it moves from the deeds to the doctrine. Notice in verse 6, it's the deeds. All these folks were doing these things. Then there were those that held the doctrine that this is the way it ought to be. When you have certain deeds take place in a church... Some people will develop the doctrine of that deed and say, later on, this is what the, how it has to be. And that's what was happening here. Now then, look at verse 7. It says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, saith unto the churches. So the individual within this church of Ephesus, the first one we're studying, was to hear. And this is said in all the churches. The one that has an ear to hear, let him hear. What the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. So there's a personal responsibility of every individual in the church. Then and now to hear. To hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. And then it tells us, it gives us a promise of reward. To him that overcometh. 
will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now the tree of life, remember back in the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis chapter 2, the Lord said in verse... uh, 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat, for thou in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. But in verse 9, it says, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the eyes and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. He says, You can eat of that tree of life, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God says, I don't want you to eat of it. So man had the privilege at the beginning of eating of that tree of life. And then he cut himself off. And in chapter 3, verse 24, it says, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And in verse 22, he says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Now And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life. God says, lest he takes of that tree of life and live forever. Then he put that barrier up so he could not eat of that tree of life. Let me give you an explanation of that and we'll get back to this in Revelation. Suppose God had not put a safeguard around that tree of life back in the book of Genesis when man had sinned. Then man, in his sinful state, man in his condition of a sentence of death passed upon him because he says, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. It means dying thou shalt die. And with the surety of death for man, and then God says, I don't want him to eat of that tree of life lest he live forever. Wouldn't it be awful for you and I, as sinful men, to live forever in a sinful body that's subject to the things that sin has caused? God was gracious in preventing that. And now He's turning around and when He changes things and when we have a new life in the future, after uh, this earthly life is over, we can eat of that tree of life and we can enjoy it because we will not be in a sinful body any longer. And if you look in Revelation 22, glance on over there, in Revelation 22, notice, verse 1 and 2, it says, And He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life. When we get in that eternal state, we can eat of that tree of life with joy forever. But we don't want to eat of that tree of life literally now and have to live in a body. Can you imagine living in a body that's diseased and subject to death for even a thousand years? Let alone to just keep continue and continue on and on to live in a, a body that's racked with pain and age and suffering, and sorrow. God is gracious, isn't He? He says, I'm going to give you a certain time to live on this earth, but after that, 
And after you're, you're resurrected, and when you receive the salvation I have for you, and you receive a resurrected body and a glorified body, then you can eat of that tree of life and you'll enjoy the fruits of that tree. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, and you can go on down and read about there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more curse. Right now we're under the curse because man has sinned. The Bible says in Romans 5, I believe it's verse 12, for by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death hath passed upon all men. For that all have sinned. Now we know that sin has come to us through Adam. We know that we have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So it becomes an act on our own part, finally. And we become responsible in that way. Well, back to this now. Revelation 2. Revelation 2, verse 7. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Who is the overcomer? Look in 1 John. Just turn back a page or two in your Bible. 1 John chapter 5. Look at verse 4. Just back a few pages. 1 John chapter 5 verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Verse 5 says, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? So the true believer is the one that's promised to be the overcomer. And so in our text, it says, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You have that in Revelation 2, verse 7. Now then, let's look at the next church that we have on the agenda. It's the church of Smyrna. In verse 8, this is the second one in the second chapter of Revelation. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. We said earlier that the angel means the messenger or the pastor. The angels are uh, messengers, actually. And when he's talking about the angel of the church, the messenger of the church, he's using that language to show it's a, it's, this is an earthly messenger. This is not some angel sent from heaven to come down and talk each time to a local church. But it's the messenger of the church. Now then, unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Now Smyrna means myrrh. This is a church that's going through much persecution. They're going to have to go through a lot of things. And you know, myrrh had to be crushed in order to give its uh, perfume, the sweet smell. We'll find it uh, back in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Let's see if we can find it for you. John chapter 19. In verse 39, it says, There came, this is after Jesus was taken, by Joseph of Arimathea, down from the cross. And uh, it says, And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then they took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. So this was used in burial many times. Uh, we find that when Jesus was born... 
the wise men came from the east. And what did they bring? They brought this, this one spice as well. They brought this anticipating the uh, death of Christ. Jesus was born to die. It says in Matthew chapter 2, And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And on down when they find baby Jesus, they presented the gifts. Let me read. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Matthew chapter 2. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts. Gold. Speaks of deity. And frankincense. That is the used in uh, a peace offering. It was always pleasing to the Father. And myrrh. And this was anticipating his death. In anticipation of his death. Can you imagine that these wise men knew that Jesus was to be born in such a way as to present Him with the proper gifts of life. He was indeed deity. That's when He was born. He was born the Son of God. And then His life was fragrant. Frankincense speaks of the fragrance of His life. And then myrrh, because He would die. Birth, life, and death. Okay, back in Revelation chapter 2 quickly. In verse 8, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead, you see the connection, and is alive. He says, I know thy works. In each and every instance to these local churches, he says, I know thy works. In this case, he says, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. He says, you think you're poor, but you're rich. There's another church we get on to later on that thought they were rich, and the Lord said they were poor. See, these, these people were going through a lot of persecution. Their tribulation and poverty. But he says, you're really rich. People sometimes ask me the question, why do I go through so much? You may be rich. Peter says, and the first chapter of First Peter, I believe it's verse 6 and 7. Though now if it need be, you're in great heaviness through manifold temptations. He says in verse 7 that the trial of your faith being a much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Rich, trial, gold, the trial of your faith is much more precious, much more valuable than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. Might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So we find that sometimes the trials are the riches of our lives. We don't like to look at it that way because we don't like to go through trials. But really, that's, that's the thing that develops us. That's what helps us in life. He said, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Those that say they were Jews and are not, this is what we call Judaized Christianity. They were trying to hang on to the law and keep people under the law and yet be Christian at the same time. 
Paul says, in Galatians, I believe it's 5 verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. See, you're not under the law, but you're under grace. Sin shall not have dominion over you, because you're not under the law. You're under grace. If you were under the law, you would be condemned on every side. Because we find that we are guilty and we have broken God's law. And the Bible tells us for what the law, this is Romans, I believe, 8 verse 3, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, it could not do it. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that means an offering for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Listen that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Someone says, do you fulfill the righteousness of the law? Yes, I do, because I walk after the Spirit. But I really don't personally. Christ did that for me. Jesus did it. And therefore, I walk in a free, uh, open law of the Spirit of life. The law of the Spirit of life, he says earlier, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Every Christian is free. He's free under God. He's free from bondage. He's free from the condemnation of the law. He's free from uh, everything that would hinder in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's found that freedom. In Christ, you found that freedom from everything. Why do we then live as slaves most of the time? Why do we try to live in bondage most of the time? We judge ourselves and others do too. In Romans chapter 8, Jesus says, Who is He that condemns you? It is Christ that died. And if Christ doesn't condemn us, who has a right to do it? Let's go on with this. He says, uh, They are not... which." Uh, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And in the early days of the early church, they were cast into prison. And they have been from time to time through the centuries. And they may be tried. And you shall have tribulation ten days. By the way, in our next lesson, we'll try to bring out some of the things that these ten days speak about. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. What is the second death? Revelation 21. Verse 8 says, But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake uh, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see, we take the Bible as to what it means. Some people say, well, the second death this, the second death that. Well, if you want the real interpretation of the Bible, use what the Bible says to interpret it. And you'll find what it means. Some guy might come along with one idea of what it means and another another idea. But if you use Scripture to understand Scripture, you'll have a better understanding of Scripture. 
And so we have to do that. But I want you to notice this. It says in verse 10, you have verse 10? Chapter 2, verse 10. And you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. There are many crowns that the believer can receive. I have them written down here. There's a crown of life. But there's also an incorruptible crown. Remember Paul says there's an incorruptible crown. In several places in verse uh, in First uh, Corinthians chapter nine verse twenty five he says and every man striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown men that are striving for the mastery in things of this life but we an incorruptible Paul says we strive for an incorruptible crown this crown of life that John speaks of here in Revelation two verse 10, James also speaks of this crown of life, and he said in 1 verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And then there's a crown of glory. There's an incorruptible crown, there's a crown of life, there's a crown of glory. 1 Peter 5 verse 2, these are the under-shepherd's crown. We're told, Peter says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Paul speaks of himself and all believers having for them a crown of righteousness. In 2 Timothy 4, eight. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, and which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, now you can receive this crown, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Crown of righteousness. And then there's a crown of rejoicing. And by the way, this is the soul winner's crown. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse nineteen. First Thessalonians two nineteen. Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians and he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? He says, You're going to be our crown of rejoicing when Christ comes. And I would say for the preachers today that the the people that we minister to and the ones that we try to help and serve and the ones that we try to preach the gospel to and they accept Christ and all of these people that Brother Randy and I are going to deal with and have dealt with through the years they're going to be a crown of rejoicing at the appearing of Jesus Christ and that's a wonderful crown to look forward to but we'll get into these ten things uh, in chapter 2 verse 10 the ten days you shall have tribulation ten days and we'll talk about that in our next lesson. We won't have time to do it tonight. And then we'll pick up with verse 12 and talk about the next church, which is Pergamos, which means a thorough marriage. It's a marriage with the world. This is a worldly church. It's worldly union and patronage. They had within it false doctrine. In verse 14, the doctrine of Balaam. They were were warned uh, about their false teachers that they had in their midst. 
And they were warned about the things that they were led into because of false teaching. And this next church is very interesting. The church of Pergamos. Study ahead, beginning with verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. And read the second and third chapter 